August moon. Oh, I got a boil on my thigh. You're listening to WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor. is still a kiss A sigh is just a sigh The fundamental things apply As time goes by And when two lovers woo They still say I love you You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so happy to have Nicholas Delbanco here in the studio. Nick, Nicholas, thanks for being here. And this is WCBN FM in Ann Arbor, and I'm very glad to be here. Yes. I, <laughs> yes. Thanks for underscoring that, because um, I'm glad to be here, too, and we just had fundraiser last week, and so those are tenuous times. <laughs> So glad to be back. And Jonathan Lethem helped out last week, Nicholas. So it was it's it's lovely to Terrific. Yes. He's it, smart and affable man. Yeah, he pitched. Yeah. He pitched for he us. <laughs> well, um, with any kind of luck, uh, we'll last the hour and the power won't go out. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Lastingness. Yeah. It's a perfect actually that's what we're here in the studio to talk about today. Um Nicholas Delbanco's Lastingness, The Art of Old Age, um, just out this January with Grand Central Publishing. To begin, I'll just as a framing, I'll just read the short bio in the back. Nicholas Delbanco has published 24 books of fiction and nonfiction. Among his most recent novels published by Grand Central Publishing are Spring and Fall, The Vagabonds, and What Remains. Director of the prestigious Hopwood Awards program at the University of Michigan, Del Benko has served as chair of the fiction panel for the National Book Awards, received a Guggenheim Fellowship, and twice a National Endowment for the Arts Writing Fellowship. And there's so much more. Um, and we can... We can we can fill in, and this is this is actually part two of a conversation we started a couple of years ago um, with with the count. Um, actually, uh, when I sent out the email announcement, Nicholas, um, uh, I, someone immediately emailed me from the station um, to tell me that you are one of the most charming men in the world, Mark Navarro. Um, and he spoke of your, your soothing voice and that his words will make your mind work in ways you never thought possible. Well, that's because he's in my class and he's bucking for an A. <laughs> so, <laughs> but Mark... It's, but it's a reciprocal trade agreement. I think he's terrific. <laughs> and I credit his judgment entirely. <laughs> exactly, yes. So, Mark's had his, his moment. Yeah. And, and so, thanks for sending that along to Mark. Um, 
Yes. And, and, but you, you make your home here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and we've been lucky to have you, um, here. And currently you're the, the Robert Frost Distinguished University Professor of English Language and Literature. That's correct. Um, I must say that I make, that we make our home here in Ann Arbor is a bit of a surprise to me because we moved a quarter of a century ago under the assumption it would be uh, a couple of years. Uh, we had two daughters, have two daughters, and we thought that the schools here would be terrific for them. But they've long since left, and uh, my wife and I are still happily at home. So what seemed to us like a, a brief posting became a life. Yes, because you had spent um, a, a, a chunk of time where you wrote, um, gosh, how many was it? Seven books in Vermont. That's right. Vermont uh, is the place I had lived uh, before and thought of as home, and it's still, in a certain sense, the heart's home. In fact, in the uh, late summer, they're going to reissue those books I wrote uh, about Vermont, and so I've been falling asleep imagining mountains and much worse winters than these. <gasps> what? Ha yes. Well, what happened? But also so beautiful in right. there <laughs> in what they challenge us, right? Um, well, with the reissue, Nick, does that mean, Nicholas, does that mean that you're actually going... Um, going back and, and are you doing forwards for them or is it, can you revisit the book in some new uh, way? Or You know, this more or less attaches to our declared subject this, uh, this afternoon. Uh, I did write three books about um, Vermont that are known collectively as the Sherbrooke's Trilogy yes. and they came out a long time ago, uh, 1977, 78 and 80. And, you know, they did relatively well. They had their um, uh, moment in the sun, their shelf life, and then their extinction, uh, their paperback uh, half-life, and uh, sort of faded away. So flatteringly, uh, a publisher, the Dolky Archive Press, offered to yes. reissue them. And I thought I would do it under the condition that I could turn those three novels into one which indeed was something I'd always sort of thought of them as. I mean, in my mind at any rate, they were one extended book rather than three uh, relatively brief uh, ones published serially. So I've revisited th them, and uh, some small adjustments had to be made of, of the order of, you know, well, you don't want the second book to remind you of what happened in the first if it's all now um, uh, a single text. And more importantly, well, let's put it this way. The good news, I think, is that I'm a better writer now than I was then, and the bad news is the same. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so I found myself wanting, indeed, needing uh, to rewrite it a little bit. More importantly, in a way, um, the protagonist of Possession, the first of those novels, is a 76-year-old Vermonter called Judah Sherbrooke. And I wrote about him when I was, you know, in my early 30s. So now I'm a whole lot closer to his age than I am to the age of the kid who wrote about him. And it was very interesting to revisit that and to see what I got right and what I got wrong. But uh, and it's it's interesting that you say um, 
because it kind of goes right towards this idea of lastingness too. And and no, and you said, I, I'm a better writer hmm. now. And so looking at that younger self at that moment, and um, and so being able to re-see the story what um is it possible to even say like some of the moments like what did you get what do you feel like you got right and what was something that uh, only being this this age or this moment allows well i think i i actually was um in retrospect it seems to me i was surprisingly accurate about uh what it might feel like to be a flinty old Vermonter in the middle of the winter. Because, Did you know a lot of them? Because I knew a lot of them and uh, Bennington was a place full of young people and full of old people. Um, uh, I was recently at the 100th birthday party of one of the women I uh, knew and admired uh, way back when. Um, they do keep on keeping on uh, once they uh, establish themselves and when the roots go deep. Uh, but some of the language struck me as, as, as over, um, uh, over uh, ambitiously uh, sort of aw shucksy. And uh, also there were certain kind of rhetorical tropes that I was terrifically fond of at the time that I'm happy to have excised by now. Basically, I've, I've, I've come to believe or embrace as an aesthetic that, that less is more, that uh, uh, restraint is uh, sort of grace under pressure and so on and so forth. Whereas at the time I, I was, you know, cranking up the rhetorical horn uh, 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 a note or six too loud, I think. Well, I think it's wonderful that you had that sense that this was a book meant to be, well, three books that meant to be one. And and to have that sense and then to be able to actually make it so, it's almost as if, I mean, it, it can't be, but as if at that moment and and it... Like it was always meant to be, like as you were yeah. writing them. And was it also that people pr pressured you to let go of them early too, Nicholas? Or, because um, um, that's a question I wonder sometimes, because you are a writer where soon they're going to have to add extra pages at the beginning <laughs> to list all the books you've written or use very tiny font because... Yes, indeed, uh, this, this it, was the 25th, as, it, as you said, and there's not a whole lot of room left on that page. No. Uh, <laughs> okay. I, I, I can rehearse that for you if, if you want. Um, I, I started the book, uh, Possession, with a kind of governing image that was about an old uh, king dead and being burned on a funeral pyre, um, which uh, is a somewhat common uh, image in uh, mythology and, and tribal histories and so on and so forth, whether it be of Egypt or American Indians, the, the great warrior at the top of his, uh, of his funeral pyre and and ranged around underneath him would be uh oh his wives his know, chattel so his cattle <laughs> his warriors uh his his uh, armaments and everything would go on up uh at once and then he'd float you know brilliantly out to sea or 
or whatever. Uh, so, in fact, that's the first thing I wrote. And I wrote oh. an image uh, or a few pages of my old man, uh, Judah Sherbrook, lying on a hay bale in his uh, barn in the middle of his large property in the middle of the state of Vermont, in the middle of New England, in the middle of the world. And he uh, lit himself up and committed a kind of a spectacular suicide. You'll have to believe me, it was beautiful, it was brilliant, it was perfect writing, uh, operatically splendid, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I can boast about it so cheerfully because even if you had read Possession, you wouldn't have read uh, that passage since by the time I got there a year and a half or so later, I realized that I'd gotten it all wrong and, and that this particular character wouldn't do that. He'd be too much of a skinflint and too much of a Yankee uh, to, you know, to burn up his property. So in the end, um, I had him lie down outside on a hay bale, yes, but sort of get up and dust himself off in the morning and come back into the kitchen and have a cup of coffee with his wife, which was a lot less um, brilliantly uh, uh, composed, but a lot truer, it seemed to me, and a lot closer to uh, the plausible behavior of that character. The keep on, keeping on aspect. Exactly. And once I, I sort of came to understand that, I came to understand in effect that the story wasn't over. Um, so I kept going uh, serially. In fact, that's very good advice for anybody who, uh, who might be listening and contemplating a sequel. Don't kill off your characters. <laughs> Well, let's take a short break, and we'll be back. and And let's t maybe we'll hear. Could we hear a bit from Lastingness? Sure. Um, you're today on the program. Nicholas Delbanco, his his latest number twenty five, Lastingness: The Art of Old Age. We'll be right back. <laughs> If you're just tuning in, um, you've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, so happy to have Nicholas Delbanco here in the studio. His latest out with Grand Central Publishing, Lastingness, The Art of Old Age. Um, that, that musical selection, I, I should say, is one of the six Bach suites for unaccompanied cello. And I write about uh, that in this book because... <clears throat> Excuse me. One of the artists I uh, examine, one of the creatures I, I follow through the course of his career, is the great Catalan cellist Pablo Casals. Uh, this wasn't, uh, I'm quite sure, Casals uh, performing. Uh, it was done by a double bass, but... Uh, 
But Casals more or less discovered uh, those Bach suites. I mean, other people had uh, known they existed, but he found them in a secondhand bookstore in Barcelona and made them, as he said, his, his life's work. What he spent really almost story. 80 years um, uh, perfecting and performing them. And so that piece of music matters to me in this context. Yes. And it, and it makes me think of, um, because later later in the, or actually a little bit earlier in the book, you, I think you quote Carl Jung and you say, we cannot know what lasts afterwards and or what will outlast us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I love that, but it seems like with, with, Casals, there was something that uh, like his obsession, like he had to stay with it, and perhaps that's one of the indicators. He's a very interesting figure uh, in this series of portraits. Maybe I should back up for a moment. Uh, It's a book about uh, artists, uh, meaning painters, writers, and musicians, which are the three forms of, of art with which I feel familiar. Um, who at least maintained and in some degree advanced their art past the age of 70, uh, and some of them into their 80s, and as was the case with Casals, into his 90s. Um, He, by all odds, uh, he was the most consequential of cellists in the last century. I mean, he more or less invented it as an instrument for the solo repertoire. And you cannot um, be a practicing uh, cellist today without, in some sense, doffing your cap to the uh, to the memory of and the in front of the figure of, of Casals. But the point that I uh, spend some time with in this case is that uh, the cello is, a, is an unforgiving instrument. Uh, a, a piano... Um, produces its own sound and uh, so that all you really need to do as a pianist uh, in your 80s and 90s is maintain uh, your agility. Now that's a very large uh, only of course or all you need to do. It's very damn difficult to do but there are cases uh, and many or relatively many of uh, pianists who maintain their, their beauty of interpretation and uh, their technical prowess uh, till the end of their life. People like Arthur Rubinstein or Vladimir Horowitz or um, Rudolf Serkin, uh, any number of, uh, of, of great artists were able to persist. That's not true of a stringed instrumentalist because you have to produce the sound yourself. It's a function of literally physical strength. Uh, the the cello, no matter how great, uh, is mute uh, un- until you force uh, something from it. And um, so Casals, towards the end of his life, really lost his prowess as a cellist. I, I heard him uh, play when he was 90, and what one admired uh, was... Uh, not the performance, but the musicianship, as it were. I love the intersections of your life with some of the people. Just to Mm. quickly jump in here, Nicholas, where those moments are are so lively in the book, and and maybe we can talk about that later. Happily. Um, But... uh, but but maybe this this would be the moment to to read a little something uh, about uh, Casals, because it 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 says more efficiently than I can uh, the point I'm trying to make. Um, 
Uh, let me see. The Marlborough Music Festival, we're back in Vermont, in, in Marlborough, Vermont, is a family affair. And Casals participated in that festival for years. They eat, sleep, drink, and argue music there with an informal earnestness that marries practice to performance, the apprentice and the master craftsman side by side. On July 11, 1970, I watched Casals conducting Beethoven's Egmont Overture in the music barn at Marlborough. The maestro was bent and infirm. In conversation, he seemed weary, abstracted, he was well into his 90s there. And those who attended him shook their heads. He'd not been well. It took him minutes to walk from the wings, inching laboriously forward, taking small, uncertain steps to the podium and hauling himself up into position as if every movement was painful and might just prove his last. The orchestra waited, respectful, while he regained his spent breath. The silence extended, expanded, the maestro stared down at his feet. Never large, he appeared to have shrunk. We worried. We asked each other, sotto voce, if he required assistance and should be helped from the stage. And then, of a sudden, Casals raised both arms and was transformed. He threw himself forward, exhorting the players, galvanic, increasing the tempo, wielding the baton as though it were weightless and conducting the Egmont at speed. He allowed, he showed the brio and athletic exuberance of men not half his age. The fortissimi thundered, the barn fairly rocked, the celebration of freedom over oppression with which the overture ends was just as sounding and resounding as Beethoven might have dreamed it in June of 1810. When the last note died down, the conductor's arms dropped. He bent his bald head Again he looked old and exhausted. Again he took slow, weary steps and shuffled off into the wings while the hall full of people applauded. All his energy had gone into the music. There was, it appeared, nothing left. So Casals, towards the end of his life, became a conductor, a composer, and perhaps most importantly, um, a kind of an ambassador for music. You may remember seeing him at the White House or in the United Nations. Um, he was a great figure, a great promulgator of the, uh, of the art of music and what it might mean for humanity, even though his original gift, as it were, was no longer available to him. And it seems as though you also uh, affirm in the book that these these people that who were given because you you do address early on like the like some of uh, the the people uh, Lord Byron or mm -hmm. the people who maybe have been cut short and, sure. and and in their what their potential their artistic potential um, but you say that for some of the people who did have very long runs for right, um, Monet with his his water lilies right. becoming something that was so important um and it was made at the end of his towards the end of his life um that by having this focus and a, and love and passion maybe it was even henry moore when you were walking in his garden um that allows for the a longer life if with luck i mean of course with luck well, I do think luck has a lot to do with it, and perhaps more than we like to acknowledge. Uh, it's simple statistical truth that uh, 
majority of what we consider to be masterworks in our culture were produced by people before the age of 40, uh, largely because, um, you know, we didn't live this long uh, in the 14th, 15th, 17th centuries, and so on and so forth. The um, uh, accidents of time and chance, the, the business of war, the business of drowning, as was the case with, with, with Shelley, um, uh, or ill health, uh, you think of all those brilliant poets, those brilliant painters who were cut down uh, by the plague or the tuberculosis or, or, or bullets, and uh, you realize how much might have been available to our culture that we couldn't, uh, cannot claim. He's sort of like Winfred um, Owen with his short life because precisely. of World War One. Precisely. Yeah. And in fact, I'm, maybe this is the time to pitch it, I'm, uh, yes. I'm contemplating writing what I guess would be a, a prequel uh, to <laughs> this uh, about the art of youth, about those people who... Um, die for one reason or another or stop producing uh, when young. And that's what I'm going to be uh, reading from tomorrow uh, in the uh, Helmut Stern Auditorium at the Museum of uh, the University of Michigan Museum of Art. Yes, and so that's tomorrow at around five ten. Uh, usually exactly the at readings. five ten, and, and I can boast about this particular event uh, unabashedly because uh, the <laughs> other half of it yes. will be the, the brilliant and splendid poet, my colleague uh, Linda Gregerson. So at least fifty percent of that hour will be worth hearing. <laughs> Very modest, Nicholas. <laughs> Unnecessarily modest. Um, you uh, let's. Well, that will be wonderful. So you can mark it on your calendars now. This will be five five o'clock tomorrow at the University of Mich- Michigan exactly Museum so. of Art, right. and uh, and part of the Zell uh, Writer Series. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it'll be a yeah a great event to look forward to. And with. But back to to lastingness. Yeah. Can you say so? How did so? Now we know about the the prequel that <laughs> that's in, Inception somehow. Mm-hmm. But what about how did this project start as as non and nonfiction to be dealt with? Where where actually you would be very um, vulnerable if you're thinking about something on the page, working out ideas right. uh, in nonfiction. Well, for obvious reasons, uh, this is a subject that interests me now in a way that it probably didn't um, 20 or 30 years ago. Um, I'm not yet um, at the delimiting cutoff uh, point for my uh, studies, meaning uh, I'm not yet 70, but uh, I'm a whole lot closer to it than I used to be. and, uh, And I found myself facing forward and wondering what it meant after, oh my gosh, more than 40 years of publication to try to uh, um, continue. There are some personal reasons uh, for this that were really quite close to home. Um, My father died uh, a few years back, uh, two or three years back, at the age of 98. And uh, up until the very end, he would sort of say, a painting a day keeps the doctor away. And he was not a a widely recognized or successful professional painter, but he loved art, and it invigorated him. And uh, I, I knew up until 
really the very last days of his life, that that's what gave him energy and what powered um, his attention. My father-in-law, who's still alive at 95, uh, is uh, a very successful uh, and famous artist, indeed a, a cellist who had studied with Casals, which is why I was part of that party, as I said before. His name is Bernard Greenhouse, and he is, it's fair to say, fading. Um, he's no longer uh, on tour, even though I think he's uh, still the honorary president of the World Cello Congress. He more or less stays at home in Massachusetts and sleeps a lot of the time, is on oxygen all the time. But give him a cello, and he loses 20 years, and his oxygen count goes up 20 points, and he has a martini and some oysters and goes back to bed. A good diet. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's, you know what, that's, let's take a short break, and then we'll, we'll continue with this. Um, today on Living Writers, Nicholas Delbanco, his latest, book number 25, Lastingness, The Art of Old Age. We'll be right back. Time after time I tell myself that I'm so lucky to be loving you So lucky to be the one you run to see in the evening when the day is through I only know what I know the passing years will show you've kept my love so young so new and time after time you'll hear me say that I'm so lucky to be loving you Welcome back. You've got Living Writers on WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Nicholas Delbanco is here. His book, Lastingness, The Art of Old Age. Nicholas will be reading tomorrow with Linda Gregerson, poet Linda Gregerson, also lucky Michigan to have... Um, both you two, <laughs> the forces, um, tomorrow at the at the art museum at five o'clock. Mark your calendars. If I may say so, one of the reasons I delight in joining you, T, and in being on this program is because we are invited to pick uh, or help you pick uh, the musical selections. And both the first and the third of these songs uh, that we've heard, you know, in between was Bach, but uh, as time goes by and time after time are obviously connected uh, to um, uh, my topic. 
though um, Lord knows Billie Holiday and Frank Sinatra do a better job of it than I have. Hmm. Huh. The, hearing the music was just, yeah. it was just Be- beautiful, lovely. Beautiful uh, evocations of the passage of time in both instances. And so for, for your project... Nicholas, lastingness, the art of old age. Um, to go back to what we were talking about just before the break, this because often I, you, I feel like when I when I first knew about you, I it was like the fiction writer, like the the fiction, the force, and what fiction allows you to do, and examining truth in different ways. But choosing to think about the lives of many, many artists and writers, painters, some that have intersected with you in your own life so far. Um, and, but to think about the idea of this and to kind of grapple with the ideas of what makes something lasting. Could you talk a little bit about and why and to, and to put that out there yeah. in the world? Well, first of all, um, we were talking a little bit about uh, my Vermont trilogy uh, at the top of the show. Uh, by the time I finished that, uh, I had published uh, 10 novels, uh, t- literally 10 books of fiction, um, one hard on the heels of the other, and absolutely nothing else. Uh, and, and a friend of mine said to me at a certain point, he said, listen, uh, this is all well and good, but you know, you don't want to die with 50 novels and, and, uh, and no other form of, uh, of expression uh, on uh, the shelf. But why? I mean, well, and, in part because well, who said that? Why? <laughs> and had, did he have fifty novels under his belt? <laughs> no, he's uh, he's my great good friend Alan Chews, and he had oh, a yes. point. Um, you know him on the radio as the as the voice of all things considered, but he too is a, the author of short stories, novels, um, uh, nonfiction, etc. And and also these <clears throat> textbooks with you right. just recently. We, we just collaborated on a on a humongous textbook. But uh, I think the point he was making, or at least the one um, uh, I uh, found to be pointed, is that those of us who live our life uh, in the presence of books, um, in my case, uh, pretty constantly in the classroom, um, really shouldn't um, be resolutely silent about the subject. Now, in the case of uh, lastingness, it's also true that... um, I've spent my life looking at pictures and wishing I could produce them and uh, um, in the presence of musicians and, and loving to listen to them. So it seemed one could and should expand, extend of the reach at least a little. Um, and for the last 10, 15, 20 years perhaps, I've tended to write a book of nonfiction and then a book of fiction, a book of nonfiction and then fiction. And that helps because uh, the well does get dry, and when it's not wrong to let it fill up again. Uh, I also think that nonfiction allows you to learn about aspects of the world with which you're not a priori familiar, whereas uh, fiction, by and large, derives from personal experience. So that an awful lot of research went into the writing of this text. I 
I make nine uh, re relatively sustained portraits of painters, writers, and musicians, and at least nine uh, briefer ones. Uh, and uh, I couldn't have done that uh, merely and surely out of my imagination. And, and plus, it, what is fun? I would think to investigate to pursue more like because you're start you're choosing them for a reason and then somehow you're um, Then you're rewarded because oh you are or did some people fall away from the frame? Why nine of each or yeah? Uh, nine of each because I wanted uh, three in each uh, Category, but you're quite right some people got more interesting the more I uh, thought about them and uh, some people got uh, less so Mostly, however, this was a, an act of exclusion uh, rather than inclusion. You mentioned uh, Claude Monet uh, a little while ago, and he, uh, uh, he was completely uh, wonderful to write about and also gave me the excuse or the occasion to um, go to his house in Giverny and see those uh, uh, water lilies and, and irises he planted. But here, let me just again uh, read a paragraph, uh, this from very early on in the book. Each time I picked a subject, I felt a sense of loss. When writing of the painter Claude Monet, for instance, I found myself thinking, why not such other elder artists as Arp, Jean Arp, Bonnard, Chagall, Chardin, Degas, de Kooning, Kukoschka, Mantegna, Michelangelo, Renoir, Rouault, Tintoretto, Titian, Zobaran, so the process of selection was a process of exclusion. This could be an omnibus volume, yet remain a surface scratch. Uh, Michelangelo and Titian uh, of that list, uh, Chagall too, I think, uh, all lived into their 90s and were still working. Most of them uh, made it into their 80s. All of them made it into their 70s. So uh, there were many, many people that I could have focused on and in the end um, you know, in part for the sake of simplicity and part for the sake of sanity I just said okay enough is enough <laughs> and and some of the choices were because they had come entered into your life and become important for some reason like Casals right. that connection right. to the, fa the the family and and the uh, your I, orbit I was uh, fortunate in my childhood and, and uh, youth to live in a house uh, that had a lot of Goya prints on the walls and so he mattered to me from the very get-go. And your father had um, the, the, the print by his bedside even uh, up yes. until the end? Could uh, I visited him two days before he died and, and we talked about uh, Goya prints. They are actually uh, now in the University of Michigan Museum, so that's been a happy solution. Uh, the Capriciosos and the Proverbios um, with which he had lived and I had lived uh, and so um, Writing about Goya meant a lot to me, also. Maybe this is the time to read one more uh, passage uh, f from the book about an artist um, and uh, an old man I knew, the, the wonderful painter Thomas Hart Benton, though <coughs> uh, I was really introduced to him because of uh, the social activist and uh, poet and um, adventurer Max Eastman. So let me uh, read these two pages and then we'll listen to some more music. Uh, 
One summer night on Martha's Vineyard in 1967, I was at Max Eastman's house for dinner with two of his friends. The painter Thomas Hart Benton, 1889 to 1975, and the founder of the ACLU, Roger Baldwin, 1884 to 1981. Their wives were elsewhere occupied. I made the fourth of four. I was barely 20, I wasn't 25. Their wives were elsewhere occupied. I made the fourth of four. Since Eastman then was 84, there were nearly 250 years of accumulated experience lodged in these consequential elders, and I told myself to pay attention. Here was the intersection of visual and verbal art, philosophy and culture, the nexus of much I revered. Benton was a painter of great skill and power, Baldwin a man who organized and supervised a force for social good. The three were still healthy, productive. I knew enough to know how fortunate I was to be included in that company, and while I poured their drinks and cleared their plates, I knew I would learn a life lesson. Here were art and literature, personal and civil liberty, politics and activism impressively gathered together. Benton shouted. Eastman stammered. Baldwin was deaf. They smoked and coughed and swore. As the night wore on and liquor did its playful work, talk turned to old adventures. Who'd beat out whom with which redhead or blonde? Who'd gone home with which brunette? They slapped each other's backs. They complained about the weather, tourist traffic on the island, the behavior of their children and neighbors and museum directors and publishers and lawyers. They insulted each other and told bad jokes and dropped the pot of decaffeinated coffee I had so prudently brewed. Wheezing, sneezing, sputtering. They behaved like nothing so much as the college boys I told myself I'd left behind. These <laughs> Great companions, to use one of Max's titles, though he himself was writing of Einstein, Trotsky, Hemingway, and Freud, had feet of clay up to their necks. Their ancient glittering eyes might well have been, as Yeats wrote, gay, but over the course of the evening were growing heavy-lidded. The revolutionary and painter and reformer, magisterial old masters each, fell asleep in their soft chairs, as someday I hope I may, too. And we'll take a short break. Thank you, Nicholas. <laughs> um, this, that passage from Lastingness, The Art of Old Age, Nicholas Delbanco on the program today. We'll be right back. Les vieux ne parlent plus ou alors seulement parfois du bout des yeux Même riches, ils sont pauvres Ils n'ont plus d'illusions et n'ont qu'un cœur pour deux Chez eux, ça sent le teint, le propre, la lavande Et le verbe d'antan Que l'on vive à Paris, on vit tous en province quand on vit trop longtemps Est-ce d'avoir trop ri Que leur voix se lézarde Quand ils parlent d'hier Et d'avoir trop pleuré Que des larmes encore Leur perlent aux paupières 
Et s'il tremble un peu, est-ce de voir vieillir la pendule d'argent qui ronronne au salon, qui dit oui, qui dit non, qui dit je vous attends. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today on the program. Nicholas Delbanco. And thanks to Brian Delaney for engineering and for finding that on the shelves where I could not find it. Um, Nicholas, will you say, would you mind yes, it, speaking it, it, about the song? It's a beautiful song uh, by the, the Belgian um, songwriter and singer. That was his voice and his performance, uh, Jacques Brel, comes from uh, a show that uh, is still often revived. In fact, my wife and I saw it just now or last summer in, up in Stratford, Ontario. Um, it's called Jacques Brel is Alive and Well and Living in Paris. <laughs> and this, uh, for those uh, who have some trouble with the French, <coughs> les vieux means the old people. And you can hear the sort of the, the background music the... being a rocking chair in effect. Um, and uh, I, I won't try and translate it it's an entirety, but um, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful evocation of people remembering uh, their particular pasts and uh, using words like dantan, previous, uh, long temps, uh, a long time. It, it really encapsulates, incorpor incorporates the feel of old age, I think. Mm, yes. Very, yes. Without knowing any French. It's so beautiful. <laughs> and and it's, it's rare to have a recording of uh, Jacques Brel himself, so you should be pleased. Hmm? Yes, thanks to WCBN. Mm -hmm. um, definitely. And, and thanks again also for joining me here today. Nicholas. A pleasure for me, too. It's, it's, it's wonderful. And a quick word tomorrow, um, Nicholas Delbanco and Linda Gregerson will be reading at the, at the Art Museum. So, so you're saying that people could also hear you and Linda and then also see the Goya, perhaps. Uh, I'm not 100% sure of that because um, the museum isn't always... Uh, open of access past five o'clock. But in fact, in, in truth, uh, at least as of uh, last week when uh, Jonathan Lethem was here, just outside of the auditorium, or just in the entrance to the auditorium where they have kind of rotating exhibitions, they have, uh, oh, I think six or eight uh, of the proverbios, the, the Goya etchings that he produced in his in his great old age, and they're on display. So yes, walking in there, uh, one could see, um, or probably can see, um, some of the Goyas that we've just been talking about. And these thanks to your father, Kurt. Exactly so. Uh, and I, uh, I feel glad and, and grateful to have them in town. They are old friends, uh, to, to refer to Rel again. It must be strange to see them on a new wall, then. Well, um, we are, as I said, my, my father was um, devoted to the arts and a, and a passionate painter, uh, as well as an art collector, and for a long while an art dealer. Um, but... Uh, how do I put this? 
and, and there are a lot of his paintings in, in the Ford School, uh, which my wife uh, was brilliantly able to put up on uh, their long walls. Um, but uh, we wouldn't have been able to keep those, and so to get them here is, uh, to me, at least as much of a gift as a gift we made. Yes. Yes, a triumph. Yeah. Yes, they don't have to go back to the Prado or somewhere. Where <laughs> well, I have two brothers, uh, one of whom uh, lives in New York and the other of whom lives in Boston. And uh, the work that we were able to uh, get to the University of Michigan Museum, there's some uh, Rodin sculptures there also and, and a lot of African art. Uh, they would have made a lot less difference to the museums in New York and Boston. So uh, enough said about that by now. But uh, No, but that's it, incredible, it's though. That is. And it's, it's, and it's just like these these accidents of chance and luck where that you decided to, to make Michigan this, this home. Uh, well, we feel very lucky to have done so. So it's a reciprocal trade agreement. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Um, earlier um, this afternoon, Nicholas, I was talking with Alex Ralph, and mm. we were wondering about uh, like the hope and the implication of a book like Lastingness when you're considering, um, like if you're a late bloomer, you know, what this can mean for you, because then it is a hopeful thing. One of the figures uh, uh, that I portray here, though he technically doesn't quite qualify because he died uh, in his early 60s, um, is uh, indeed just such a, a late bloomer, the great Italian novelist Giuseppe de Lampedusa, whose uh, one book, uh, The Leopard, uh, Il Gatto Pardo, um, it, it's a masterpiece, but uh, it's all he wrote, and he wrote it uh, as of his early 50s, and it didn't even get published before his death, so it appeared posthumously and has become one of the classics of European literature. But is it, is it he, the case that he, he wasn't... Um, accessing the mediums of publication or was it something where he was otherwise can you well it's 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 complicated and i don't pretend to know the whole story um he was a prince um, and his family was uh, extremely ancient and extremely proud um by the time he was uh, alive they were no longer extremely wealthy it wasn't it, pure privilege, but, but the idea of working for a living never seemed to occur to him. He held only one job, um, which was uh, uh, he organized the ambulance service in Italy during the Second uh, World War, or in Sicily, rather. Well, that um, is then, you're able to do that as a noble. Yes, right? exactly. Because it was an act of uh, noblesse oblige. But it, it, he, he wasn't a, a careerist in the way that perhaps uh, most of my other subjects were. Um, and uh, uh, he, he thought it was slightly vulgar, I expect, to uh, to go out into the public arena. But a cousin of his published some poems when, when Lampedusa was about 50, and he said, you know, hell, I, I, I could do that. <laughs> I, I could uh, uh, take advantage of, of, of literacy in, in much the same way. Maybe I should write these things down. Um, towards the very end of his life, he did try to get them published, uh, tried to get the, uh, the Leopard published, and was rejected twice and uh, 
it must have cost him a good deal to uh, to know uh, or to not know that the book would appear. But um, it was accepted really shortly after his death, and it became an almost instant uh, bestseller, both nationally and then internationally. And they made a beautiful movie out of it. Another uh, Italian aristocrat, uh, Lucino Visconti, uh, made made the film. Um, with the unlikely choice of Burt Lancaster as the old Sicilian nobleman, but he was terrific. Um, anyway, uh, I uh, Lampedusa was a resolutely private and a, and a very shy man, and it's hard to know how much it cost him not to have a public uh, uh, profile. I suspect in some ways he preferred that. But he's a perfect example of... Um, an artist whose work outlasts him, as it were. Perhaps the, the, uh, the most notable of them all um, is uh, someone like John Keats or uh, Vincent van Gogh. Um, uh, Keats died at 25. Mistakenly, if modestly, he wanted his tombstone to read, Here lies one whose name was written water. It never occurred to him that uh, he would have the kind of posthumous fame that we now um, uh, accord him. Van Gogh killed himself in small part, I suspect, but at least in part, because he was a total commercial failure. He could sell none of his paintings, and now they go for routinely from tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. And think so, about the calendars. Well, no, <laughs> I shouldn't even joke about that. Yeah. It's just so yeah. horrific, though. <laughs> but, but I mean, there are uh, lastingness is in that sense uh, a a word with doubled intention. Part of it has to do with simply keeping on, keeping on, and um, staying awake and alert. Um, and that, of course, is a problem that that many of us, uh, increasing legions of us. In America, face uh, it's not something that uh, that the merely sheerly prodigiously uh, talented have to uh, confront as they get old. But by and large, I focused on uh, the other aspect of lastingness, which meant that the work endures uh, as opposed to disappears with its maker. Because that's what concerns you. It does, and I can delude myself that uh, a book like this might uh, might be around for a, a little while longer yes well let's hope so darn it <laughs> <laughs> and and nicholas onto then this new project that with mm. with the art of the youth coming into it what are some of the parts of this that are exciting to you right now i've suggested some of them i, I think t i mean though uh as we said, uh, it turns out this was an easier exercise than I had anticipated in the sense that there were more uh, numerous artists who were grand and great uh, in their old age. It's nonetheless simply true that most of the best uh, work we have is produced by people who didn't attain uh, old age. There are, as I said, several reasons for that. Some of yes. them are uh, uh, physical, some of them uh, the horrors of uh, deprivation and war. 
And some of it, just the flat actuarial fact that we're living longer now than ever before. But is there one of the artists that you're enjoying right now, that, like that, that, that thrill that you spoke of where some people really rose in when you were pursuing their story? Um, is any of that happening or what, what is happening in the, this project at the moment? It's still very early in it. Oh, awesome. And uh, I, I'm still, in fact, not 100% sure I'll pursue it because if nothing else... As I now know from its predecessor, it will be two or three years' worth of work, and I'm not convinced I want to commit that to it. I think I probably will. Uh, but that's exactly why I'm airing it out tomorrow, to see whether it uh, it sounds right, as mm. it were. I was once young and uh, can kind of remember the... Uh, uh, the enthusiasm, the the excitement of, of publishing. My first novel came out when I was 23, and it feels very different uh, now uh, as, if not exactly a golden codger, at least a, a brassy or a bronzed one, um, that uh, a, a book has a, it just feels differently, even uh, feels different, even if it's precisely the same number of pages and, and heft. What, uh, what do you mean? Yeah, what do you mean by that, Nicholas? Well, when my first book came out, I, I was persuaded that uh, the world would stop turning, that we would um, uh, solve the, uh, the specter of nuclear war, that the population problem wouldn't be one, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it turns out, as I uh, tell my students, uh, that... When your first book comes out, uh, what you have to think about is your second and your third. And in some degree, there's no response to a book, whether great praise, uh, great dispraise, or the most likely a kind of benign neglect, um, that uh, that's anything other than a, a gravitational side drag upon the forward motion of, of, of the next. Um, of your and, own creating. Right. In fact, lastingness has, has done... Uh, by my lights um, uh, surprisingly and impressively well there's been a lot of attention paid to it uh, around the country in part I'm sure in principal part because of its subject and the fact that the elderly are literate and and concerned it's not a how-to book in the sense of you know, how to improve your <laughs> golf game or get rid of your wrinkles but um, there are quite a few of us who who are confronting uh, the same issue that being said, um, uh, and when I was in Florida or California or Chicago or what have you, sort of promulgating the book and flogging it, I did find myself getting up each morning and wishing I could be left alone so I could write. And that's, and that's the feeling that, is that you're feeling. doing it for. Exactly so. And if there's a common denominator in the 20 or 25 people that I talk about in this book, I'm sure it's that exactly that, the sense that the work itself is the reward. And particularly if, as is mostly the case with my subjects, there's been a good deal of prior reward. Um, it, uh, it's, it's an inward-facing uh, proposition in the end. Just to bring it full circle, because I know we need stop, um, the Monet, whom I talked about, the Goya, uh, who we've talked about, they were both very successful, uh, kind of commercially uh, consequential figures 
in the primes of their life, court painters in the case of Goya, uh, and yet they turned away from all of that. Um, one in part, I suspect, because of his deafness, one in part because of his incremental blindness. They continued to work. They persisted, and there are many uh, who argue that their last work is their best, but it had a lot less to do with the barnstorming aspects of uh, production. And what what did it have then? Oh, I think like the soul, really. Uh, or no, and in truth, or... <laughs> like 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 most habits, it's harder to break than it was to make. <laughs> but you get the sense of these wild old men, these fiercely focused uh, people. George O'Keefe was like that, uh, just as much. Uh, fiercely who, focused. Yeah, I love abs- that. Absolutely, and with 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 a kind of incremental impatience for every flattering attention that the world might pay um, and uh, just a sense that if time is not running out it's at least precious and I think I can leave you with that well thank you Nicholas Delbanco uh, tomorrow um, you can hear Nicholas and, and Linda Gregerson uh, read at the University of Michigan's Museum of Art um, Thanks so much for being here and talking with me today. Lovely to be here, T, and thank you for inviting me. Come back anytime. Um, Lastingness, The Art of Old Age by Nicholas Delbanco. Um, you've been listening to Living Writers. Thanks for that. Um, thanks again to Brian Delaney. Until next week, I'm T. Hetzel. right and connects, reaching for the end zone, touchdown Michigan, Amara Dharma. Gardner makes a hand off to Smith, looking, firing, Jake Buck, one-handed catch, he caught it, unbelievable catch. And you are listening to the Daily Sports Report. Happy Wolverine Wednesday here from the 